Bankless Nation, welcome to the DevCon 6 experience. I just got back from DevCon Bogota, and it was my first DevCon, and I had a ton of fun. And this is something I do every time I go to a conference, some big conference, I try and come back with as much content and interviews as possible. So this trip, I come back with about 10 interviews between 10 to 20 minutes in length from a variety of members throughout the Ethereum community. I want to give you the experience that I had and many other people had if you were not able to make it to DevCon. Or maybe you were able to make it to DevCon, but you were just too busy doing the hackathon, attending the booths, and you didn't get to talk to everyone that you wanted to talk to. So I pulled in as many different people I could to get their perspective as to what DevCon was for them, what they're paying attention to in the future, and overall, just how much fun do they have while hanging out in Bogota, Colombia. First up in the list, Vitalik Buterin, of course. And we talk about a number of different things throughout DevCon. He's been to every single DevCon. So I asked him about the history of DevCon and how DevCon has progressed forward as Ethereum has progressed forward. And I also make the point about how DevCon isn't really just a tech conference. It's also something much more than that. So what does DevCon actually do for the Ethereum ecosystem? And then we just go through the list of a variety of other subjects as well, such as what are developers focusing on now, now that we are post-merch? And also, what does he think about the Arbitrum acquisition of Prismatic Labs? And overall, what's he going to do in Colombia once DevCon is over? And what does Vitalik Buterin do when the sun goes down and everyone goes to parties? What does he do? Does he go to parties? So stay tuned for all of those questions and more. But first, we're going to talk about every single sponsor that makes this show possible in a fun and creative speed run. So here we go. TrueFi is leading DeFi into the future of on-chain, uncollateralized loans, opening up DeFi to the $8 trillion global credit market. Whether you want higher yields on your lending or you're a fund manager who just wants access to global liquidity and the cost savings of DeFi, TrueFi is here for you. But if you're going to use TrueFi, use it through the Brave browser, the user-first browser for the Web3 age. The Brave browser keeps your digital footprint small, keeping you in the driver's seat while also being a powerful battle station for Web3, letting you access your crypto through its native wallet, view your NFTs, and keep up to date with your Web3 communities. Another thing you can use through Brave is, of course, Arbitrum. And you all, of course, have heard about Arbitrum, but the Arbitrum ecosystem is really heating up. With a recent launch of Arbitrum Nova, Arbitrum has entered the world of multi-chain layer twos. And with a recent acquisition of Prismatic Labs, Arbitrum firepower is bigger than ever. Arbitrum Nitro shipped last month and has made Arbitrum faster and cheaper than ever before. So make sure that you can experience what Arbitrum has to offer before it's too late. But maybe you're a developer who hates the constraints of the EVM. So check out the Fuel VM from the Fuel Network, which has opened up the world of parallel transaction execution, breaking Fuel Network free from EVM baggage. With Fuel, you can leverage the Rust tooling ecosystem to build stronger apps, all while keeping Ethereum-level security. Also pushing the frontier of Web3 development is the Sequence Wallet from Horizon. Sequence is the all-in-one developer platform you need to build Web3 games and applications. For users, Sequence is a smart wallet, and perhaps the most intuitive wallet in all of Web3. But for developers, it's a plug-and-play platform for all Web3 apps and games. Check out Sequence, which is already powering some of the best Web3 games out there. And lastly, DSO is a decentralized social platform built from the ground up to disrupt the social media industry. Disrupting social media takes a lot of data, and DSO's infinite state applications can finally store and index large amounts of content and data fully on-chain. With multiple crypto-native monetization mechanisms for both developers and creators, DSO wants to usher in a new relationship with our social applications. Check them out at DSO.com. And now, on to the show. 
Bankless Nation, we are here at DEFCON 6 in Bogota, Colombia, and I'm, of course, here with Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik, how are you enjoying Bogota? It's a nice city. It's a nice conference, mm -hmm. so good. So, Developers Convention, DEVCON, mm -hmm. would give the air that it is a tech conference, but mm -hmm. I don't really think that summarizes what DEVCON really is enough. What mm -hmm. is DEVCON? DEVCON is kind of the, you know, it's a decentralized everything conference. Maybe that's what DEV stands for. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know, there's just all kinds of uh, different uh, communities that are coming here and, um, you know, sometimes are even kind of intentionally brought together here, right? Like there's the... Uh, a whole bunch of uh, different uh, developers, um, you know, layer one, layer two, cryptography, um, you know, programming languages, everything. There's uh, local community people from, um, you know, both uh, Latin America and uh, plenty of other places. You know, saw a couple of people from uh, Iran a couple of uh, days ago and, uh, you know, big shout out to all the brave people uh, protesting there. There's uh, people from all kinds of different industries. There's, uh, you know, intellectuals of various kinds. Uh, we kind of brought in, uh, you know, Bruno Amasaj and uh, Venkatesh uh, Rao this year. And, uh, you know, they've been uh, kind of walking around and doing some uh, presentations and uh, kind of blabbing their thoughts on Twitter. And it's just been fun to see their outsider impressions of, um, you know, what's going on here. So, yeah, I think in general, it's just this, uh, you know, really cool and uh, weird event where all kinds of uh, people get to see other people that they would uh, not normally get a chance to see. And that's certainly the experience that I've been having. And, you know, many other crypto conferences out there pick cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, mm. But DevCon has always picked uh, off-the-beaten-path cities. Uh, here we are in, in Bogota, Colombia. Mm -hmm. Previously, it was Osaka, Japan, and also Prague in the Czech Republic. And what's the thought process behind how cities are selected, and why are we going across the world rather than being in the United States? I mean, we definitely do intentionally try to uh, move the continents around every year. I think uh, part of that is a... Yeah, it's a very yeah, intentional strategy to uh, kind of empower the yeah, you know, Ethereum's uh, global community and uh, to try to give people from all of these different uh, regions a chance uh, to um, you know, be able to come to at least uh, one of the yeah, events easier and um, you know, share their side of uh, you know, what uh, crypto is doing for them. Mm -hmm. I think uh, you know, having a geographically decentralized community is, uh, just has to be part of uh, having a decentralized uh, community in our modern world. And, uh, you know, we get an, an opportunity to just see, you know, kind of talk to all kinds of people that I think uh, we would not be able to if it was uh, just uh, happening in the same place every time. Certainly. And, and Ethereum, of course, is technology and mm -hmm. software. Yeah. But it's more than that, right? It's mm -hmm. social coordination. And this may, brings it beyond the areas of just like fintech and mm -hmm. coding stuff mm -hmm. and much more deeper into the world of culture. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I've really been enjoying here in Bogota and many of the other Ethereum conferences is it's one part tech, but it's also one part experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's what really Ethereum is emblematic of here to do in this world is, you know, produce new technology that is really just to enable to facilitate culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think it's really important that we go around and experience different parts of the world that, you know, you don't, you're not going to get in New York or San Francisco. Absolutely. And so this is my first DEF CON, actually. And mm -hmm. even though I've been in the Ethereum space for about four or five years, the other DEF CONs have sadly escaped me. But I'm wondering your, uh, if you could give us a trajectory of the development of the DEF CON coordination. And my mm -hmm. take here is that mm -hmm. as Ethereum has become more and more 
coordinated and organized, so has DevCon. How were the previous DevCons and how is this one different? Yeah, so I mean, DevCon Zero was like actually kind of the equivalent of, you know, what we do now with like things like the yeah, M4 retreat in Athens, right? It was um, last, last year, it was just uh, this, uh, you know, private events, uh, kind of 50 people get all of the developers together, just kind of get all of uh, people working on Ethereum itself in sync. And that's... Uh, mm -hmm. Pretty much all that we could do because I mean, the Ethereum community was just uh, so tiny then, right? Then uh, DefCon one in uh, London, first public one, uh, which was uh, exciting. Um, th this was also the time when uh, Microsoft was uh, doing lots of uh, Ethereum things, and uh, you know they were doing their uh, enterprise uh, blockchain stuff, and uh, they sponsored uh, DefCon, which uh, was just mind blowing for everyone at the time. That um, you know a, a company as big as Microsoft would, you know, grace a yeah. A tiny little uh, movement like ours, by uh, even to the point of being willing to sponsor it and um, you know send a, a bunch of people to speak, and you know, it was a, a lot of developers, a lot of um, applications, just a lot of different tracks. Then DefCon two, uh, Shanghai, uh, definitely the yeah kind of first uh, you know out of a lot of people's comfort zone one, and, and um, you know, trying to you know, make uh, kind of better relations with the Chinese community, and um, you know that was uh, interesting. And uh, I, mean, I feel like the uh, you know the Chinese community has been uh, kind of doing uh, more and more uh, you know great things in, uh, in in Ethereum since then, right? You know we've got like Scroll and Soul Wallet, and you know all of these uh, things uh, happening now. And then Cancun, um, you know we just uh, wanted to be in North America, and uh, you know Cancun is. Uh, more accessible from people from uh, down south than uh, doing it in uh, you know US or Canada. And, uh, we also wanted to. We always uh, keep in mind, um, you know, trying to not host events like too often in places where the visas are too restrictive, mm -hmm. and like that's you know one of the uh, challenges that you know the US unfortunately has. Right, like there is that famous story where like, Adi Shamir is like one of the you know literal grandfathers of cryptography got rejected for a visa for a cryptography conference. Yeah. yeah um, but you know, each time the events uh, got bigger, there are kind of more and more tracks. Uh, there's uh, you know more and more attempts to kind of be intentional about promoting all of the different uh, parts of the uh, Ethereum community that would you know, not naturally uh, get promoted by themselves. Then uh, you know, DefCon Four in Prague was the really big one, right? And like twice as big as anything that uh, happened before, and that was. Uh, also, one that I remember, it's probably the first one where we made a really serious attempt to kind of bring in interesting thinkers uh, from the outside, right? So Cory Doctorow was uh, there. Uh, Glenn Weil uh, from you know, Radical Exchange was there. Uh, so uh, a bunch of speakers and, uh, you know, also speakers who had a kind of interesting and, um, you know, not just positive, but also kind of importantly cautionary things to say about uh, crypto, which I think is uh, important for us to engage with. Um, then, uh, you know, DEFCON 5, Osaka, that's, uh, I, I feel like it was you know, a continuation of uh, things uh, that were there before. And, uh, you know, also interesting people, also uh, more both developers and uh, all kinds of um, other projects. And then uh, here, this is like the first one in three years, right? Okay. So that by itself makes it really big. And, um, you know, there's, uh, I think, an effort to really take the best from the previous ones, um, right? So, you know, developers and uh, really yeah, interesting and uh, fascinating people getting into, you know, the deep end of uh, polynomials. And, uh, <laughs> you know, polynomials are important, right? As I said, you know, I'm a polynomial, you're a polynomial, we're all polynomials. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people from all of Ethereum's local communities and people talking about different kinds of um, applications and then you know, people on the philosophy side. And uh, there's just 
all of that. The, uh, it feels like the venue was uh, pretty successful, right? Like just, uh, you know, as a venue, it was effective at venueing, which is something <laughs> that has uh, not always been uh, true in the past. It's, uh, you know, close to hotels, convenient for um, a lot of people to stay. Probably the biggest weakness of the venue is that, like, I found myself when I get uh, dragged off to, like, various, um, you know, side dinners and events and so forth. Like, there is one specific district of Bogota, about 7.5 kilometers to the northeast of here, mm-hmm. where just, like, everybody went, right? Yes. And, uh, like, it just seems obvious that, like, if we could just teleport this place, I mean, you know, 7.5 kilometers to the northeast, like, that would have, uh, you know, two likes improved it even more, but, uh, you know, there's uh, never perfection and, uh, you know, still in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it feels like everything has worked out. I mean, obviously, yeah, a lot of people came in worried about issues like safety, but, um, you know, so far, I think uh, there have been, you know, fewer, like, serious incidents of uh, that type than, uh, I would say, even the Bulls expected. Uh, so... You know, you know, hopefully, yeah, you know, it's, uh, the event even gave uh, a lot of people a chance to kind of see Latin America better for what it really is. Yeah, no, I, so, you know, I'm happy. Lots of people, good conference. I mean, I hope we can uh, do more um, excellent ones like this in the future. Yeah, certainly. And and this is also mm-hmm. an interesting time in Ethereum's history that we're having DevCon mm-hmm. right after the merge, right after yes. Proof of Stake, mm-hmm. uh, because this seems to be a new chapter for Ethereum. And so mm-hmm. it's just great timing that we can put everyone into the same spot mm-hmm. and kind of come to consensus about what is the next era of Ethereum now that mm-hmm. the Proof of Stake era is mm-hmm. well underway, but also mm-hmm. now behind us because mm-hmm. it, it's done. Mm-hmm. 2021 was kind of the year of shipping Proof of Stake, ultrasound money, mm-hmm. and now those boxes are checked. Mm. So what boxes aren't checked that we are going to be going into in 2023? That's the conversation here at DEF CON. Solving scalability is number one. Like fees have been low for the past six months, so it's uh, a bit easier to kind of back burner the problem. But I think, um, you know, if Ethereum succeeds, we're going to have another bull. And, uh, you know, we know what bulls mean for transaction fees, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, from the point of view of a user, some, you know, bulls uh, can even be something to dread just uh, because of how it makes uh, transaction fees, uh, you know, shoot up to... 50 or $100 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there is a uh, kind of ticking uh, clock on us to solve the issue. And, uh, you know, we don't know how long the clock is going to keep ticking. And, right. uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, our responsibility to really make sure that scaling is uh, figured out before then. Um, so scaling, um, privacy um, is, uh, you know, another one. Um, the yeah, base layer censorship resistance is another one. Account mm-hmm. abstraction is another one. And, you know, there's all kinds of complicated ways in which these problems uh, intersect and uh, tie in with each other, too. On the uh, positive side, uh, zero-knowledge proofs as a uh, technology have just, uh, you know, seen a huge amount of uh, progress in the uh, last three years, right? When the yeah, There was kind of this big leap that started, I feel, in uh, September 2019 when uh, Planck was uh, introduced, right? Because, uh, like... From the user's point of view, it's like, okay, Plonk, there is another snark protocol. It looks like it's a little bit niftier than before. But like from a, yeah, you know, like deep practitioner's point of view, it's like this very deep philosophical improvement in how we think about snarks, right? Because like we're able to basically think about, you know, converting things that we want to prove into abstract polynomial equations and then separately figuring out, okay, how do we prove the polynomial equations? And it turns out that, like, you know, both of those areas are, you know, you can do lots of deep improvements on and uh, things become, you know, conceptually much cleaner, becomes much easier to progress when you do really start thinking about those two separately, right? And, uh, you know, one side can think about, you know, how do we turn problems that we care about into polynomials without thinking about the other side? And since then, we've seen amazing stuff like 
look up and, uh, you know, more and more um, interesting things lately. And then on the other side, there is the problem of like, okay, you know, you, you have a polynomial equation and, uh, you know, the polynomials are big, but, you know, how do we prove it? And that's seen a lot of uh, progress too. And there's amazing stuff happening with Starks and uh, all that, right? But this conference, I feel, has to some extent sort of been a victory lap for the uh, just the fact that that technology exists and has practical use now, right? You know, everyone is uh, talking about Synarchs and it's increasingly a uh, default thing that you stick into um, applications that you're building. And that's just totally not what the discourse was like five years ago. Right. Mm. The thing I wanted to check with you is before getting into proof of stake, shipping proof of stake, mm -hmm. it seemed to be the focal point of all of the developers. Like mm -hmm. it was the thing we were focusing on. Mm -hmm. And now post proof of stake, mm -hmm. I mean, we're definitely focused on proto dank sharding and dank sharding EIP 4844 as mm -hmm. like the big one, mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to be a monolith, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be yeah. attracting everyone's attention. And so mm -hmm. would you say that we're going from all of the core devs and Ethereum devs focusing on proof of stake to now focusing on a variety of things all at once? And so mm -hmm. perhaps we're getting into a, an era of parallel development in Ethereum. How do you like that take? I'd say that's true, though. I think that also, uh, I, like, underestimates how much parallelism there was already, right? Like, uh, even the merge, I mean, you know, there's all this work on the execution clients, there is work from the consensus clients, uh, there is work from the MEV people, right? That's, uh, you know, actually a pretty big project. And then, you know, there are sort of, you know, sort of de facto precursors like uh, the EIP-1559, which is like, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with proof of stake technically, but it kind of, uh, you know, exercised a lot of the muscles of uh, being able to make significant changes to the protocol. I think one way to think about post-proof-of-stake Ethereum development is to think about what the uh, uh, kind of long-term North Star of uh, like what Ethereum could look like from a technical perspective, right? And like I have this uh, you know fairly simple description that I yeah, you know gave on stage a couple of days ago, right? Which is I'm like, so Ethereum in 2032, you have a node. Your node runs on your phone mm -hmm. every 12 seconds or 32 seconds or whatever number we uh, agree on. You download 3.6 me uh, megabytes of data. You hash it. Um, you do a couple of uh, elliptic curve equations to check a snark. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know the block is valid. Wait uh, 12 seconds. Get 33.6 megabytes of data. Hash it. Do some elliptic curve operations. Verify the snark. And uh, valid. 12 seconds later, data, hash, elliptic curve check, valid. Right? So... From the point of, like, the whole process just becomes, in, you know, incredibly sleek and uh, seamless to the point where, like, literally a phone could even do it, right? Because it's incredibly light on computation. The only thing that it's heavy on is data. And data just happens to be the thing that, you know, phones are increasingly getting insanely good at and will get even better at over the next 10 years, right? So in that kind of a world, you know, we, uh, we have extreme protocol simplicity. We have... Uh, High decentralization from easy ability to run a node, easy ability for anyone to stake. Hopefully, you know, simplify the fork choice down. We have single slot finality. You know, everything about accounts and abstraction and all of these things just work, right? And uh, the protocol does just like, get to a state, to this kind of stabilized end state that just looks really beautiful, right? So, like, that to me is uh, what I see the yeah, final uh, kind of, like goal being from a, yeah, a protocol standpoint. And then the, the challenge is like, you know, how do we figure out all these different five strands that will actually get us right. there? Sure, sure. Mm. One of the big pieces of news that happened at the CEVCON was the acquisition of Pry Labs, Prismatic Labs by Arbitrum. Mm. And there's two takes here. There's one where, yes, we've solved funding of client teams. Like we figured it out mm -hmm. where we can have a relationship between a layer two 
perpetually fund the development of layer mm -hmm. one clients. And so that's always been a problem that's plagued mm -hmm. Ethereum throughout its history is how do we mm -hmm. fund our client teams? Mm -hmm. How do we fund our open source public goods developers? Mm -hmm. The other half of that equation is there's now this commercial entity that is operating a very important piece of the Ethereum layer one client. Mm -hmm. When you saw this news, what did you think? How do you think about these two things? Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, on the funding aspect, I mean, it's obviously great that there are kind of non-Ethereum foundation sources of uh, funding for these projects. And obviously, this will give any future client teams a story that they can tell to uh, mm -hmm. investors for why they should get seed rounds. So mm -hmm. it's I mean, going to help people in all kinds of second order ways. From a uh, governance uh, capture viewpoint, I guess... Uh, I think there's like multiple different things that it's important to keep in mind, right? Like one is that like Arbitrum is not kind of, you know, uniquely threatening or kind of, you know, scary or whatever here, right? Uh, so, you know, like Optimism had been uh, help, kind of participating in uh, EAP4844 and put a couple of uh, developers toward it. Consensus uh, has, um, you know, literally funded entire client teams, right? And then the question is like, well, what's the difference between buying a client team and just uh, incubating um, a couple of them uh, yourself, um, right? There's uh, a long history of, um, you know, all kinds of uh, projects. Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah, you know, the yeah, parity running the yeah, parity clients and uh, you know, also having the Polkadot network, right? So, like... This isn't unprecedented, though, I mean, at the same time, you know, like obviously what Arbitrum did is uh, kind of bigger than, um, you know, what Optimism has done and so forth. But it's not like, you know, we're entering a scary new unknown or anything, right? But at the same time, like it is, it's definitely important for us to be vigilant, right? Like the sort of dystopia that I yeah, have in mind is uh, traditional internet governance, right? If you look at, you know, the depth we see and, and so forth, um, there's a lot of precedent for public goods organizations where their funding model basically is we get funding by uh, people who are buying governance leverage. Mm -hmm. And uh, that does fund them, but that also leads to some often not very nice uh, governance outcomes, right? Like there have been a bunch of uh, scandals about like introducing, uh, you know, sort of the equivalent of, um, you know, protocol layer DRM into, uh, you know, various uh, internet protocols. And, uh, you know, that gets pushed by the yeah, large corporations that, get, that have seats at some of these um, organizations. So, you know, the concern here basically is like, can we yeah, avoid that, right? And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I have a, a good answer. Like, I think it's like, it's important for us to start thinking about the question. Like, mm -hmm. it is important to not be catastrophist about it, right? And like, also just remember the reality that like all of these uh, people who are participating in even, you know, the people signing the checks and buying these uh, things up and funding the client teams, you know, they are, uh, you know, well-meaning people and, um, you know, they are still aligned with the Ethereum ecosystem. But, you know, we have seen how kind of, like divergences of uh, alignment, uh, you know, happen over time and, uh, you know, how even the internet itself sort of, um, you know, felt like a, uh, you know, crypto-y idealistic happy family in the early 2000s. And then it, uh, you know, split into all kinds of things that uh, ended up having, you know, often bitterly opposing objectives. And uh, yeah, it's time to kind of start, you know, thinking and uh, being vigilant and, you know, at least asking the question of uh, like what it means to have a governance process that's robust against these kinds of things. Sure. And might a positive second order consequence of this be an actual stronger mm -hmm. incentive mechanism for more client diversity mm -hmm. if we have shown mm -hmm. to the world that, hey, if you build a client, you might mm -hmm. get acquired and have a payday? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, absolutely, I think. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the question is like, what part of all the uh, client uh, teams and developers get funded in this way, right? Like, I think, uh, you know, zero to 20% is an improvement, but like 75 to 95 would, I think, be a, like a massive threat, right? Yeah. yeah so it's uh, one of, uh, you know, those kinds of situations where, you know, we want to kind of cheer the first step of the journey, but kind of recognize that uh, we don't want to over rely on this, which right. is like something that has happened in the internet and that has lots of problems there. At Rollup Day, which was hosted by Scroll on Monday before DevCon, mm. you talked about how historically almost everything about crypto and software in general is slow to ship. Uh, you know, the proof of stake came much later than expected. And, mm -hmm. you know, I could repeat seven other examples of the same thing. But then you said that it's been the ZK teams, the ZK Rollup teams that mm. have really astounded the trajectory of development. Why is that the case? Like, what was the magic secret sauce that has really accelerated mm. the ZK EVM? Because we saw two... ZK EVM testnets mm -hmm. announced by Scroll and mm -hmm. Polygon. Mm -hmm. ZK Sync announced their Layer 3 testnet and mm -hmm. mainnet in like in 15 days or so. Mm -hmm. How did this happen so quickly? What do you credit the success of all of these teams? Mm. I think uh, there's some things that are slow and there's some things that are fast, right? And like, it feels like different types of technology are just like naturally have different speeds, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you even compare like the rate at which AI has been progressing over the last year versus, um, you know, supersonic flight where, you know, we're going to, looks like we're going to have it again, but we're going to have to wait until, you know, close to the end of this decade, right? Mm -hmm. And like, that's obviously a big difference between kind of atoms and bits, but, you know, within the world of bits, there's different kinds of bits. And it does feel like once the tools are there and uh, once uh, kind of, you know, the basics of zero knowledge stuff get abstracted enough, then the rest of it is just like something that can, you know, just like start running pretty quickly, right? Mm -hmm. So, I'd say, yeah, Pluckup probably has been really important, right? Like five years ago, the yeah, attitude toward these ZKVMs is probably, you know, we're not going to even try because we just know that the overhead of literally sticking an EVM into a snark is going to be totally infeasible. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, since uh, then, you know, we've had Plunk and we've had Pluckup and we've had all of these uh, theoretical improvements. And, like, that's actually gotten us to the point where, like, it makes sense for people to start writing the circuits and, you know, the circuits start getting written, right? So... That's uh, nice, and but then you know, it is important to be cautious and remember, like it is very possible that we're going to have uh, zk EVMs with bugs within a year, but getting to zk EVMs without bugs is going to take, um, you know, another five to right. ten years. Right. Uh, so, you know, still, it's a it's a huge amount of progress, and it's definitely really something that we should all be uh, taking advantage of. Certainly, at conferences, there's always two parts, right? There's the conference during the day, and then mm -hmm. there's the fun activities at night. People mm -hmm. go off and mm -hmm. have dinner, mm -hmm. sometimes small dinners, large dinners. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they go to parties. Mm -hmm. What does Vitalik do after the conference day is over and the sun goes down? Generally, have been trying to have like fairly quiet dinners and go to sleep fairly early. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm realizing like I'm definitely not a fan of the late night stuff, possibly because I'm just like totally out of energy from talking to people that yeah. like I don't want to do any more of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Is it draining to be at a conference where everyone is hounding you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How have you managed this? Have you learned to, to juggle this? I mean, realistically, just like try to be aware of when I have the energy for this stuff and when I don't and like when I don't hide. You know, I don't know. It's probably yeah, better to hide than to like just go out anyway and have some risk of accidentally being mean to someone. Right. So, mm -hmm. Vitalik, yesterday on our account abstraction panel, I asked you to introduce yourself because every single time mm -hmm. you introduce yourself in a different era mm -hmm. of Ethereum, you have a different way of doing it. Who are you in Ethereum in 2022? Well, I mean, I guess uh, yesterday I said I'm a fashion influencer and travel blogger. But, uh, <laughs> 
I don't know, what will I be in 2023? Who knows? You know, might uh, circle back to being a white paper author. I don't know. Well, I don't know. What we, you know there's always more white papers to write, you know? Sure. Sure. Vitalik, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate yeah, no, it. No, thank you too. It's good Cheers. to be here. Cheers. Cheers.